All right, let's do this. This week on the episode, Honda drops the NSX in favor of the Civic Type R, a Ferrari explodes, and the Nissan Z is a failure, and bending the rules is back with one of the biggest scams in racing. Scott Tucker and Level 5 Racing. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe wherever you're catching this podcast. Follow us on YouTube and Instagram for more content at 91 Octane. Let's start the show. This thing is a freaking monster. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John, and let's go under the hood. Honda believes that if it wants to win again, it needs to drop the NSX and promote the Civic Type R. The Honda Civic Type R GT starts track tests ahead of the 2024 race debut. So in January, Honda unveiled the Civic Type R GT prototype. Um, It was supposed to be the new contender for the Super GT. Uh, and this was at the Tokyo Auto Salon in Japan. Uh, and the Super GT series is a top level of car racing in Japan. And it has two classes, the GT300 and the GT500. The Civic Type R GT is developed from the road legal Civic Type R and has the same motor. So it's essentially just a souped up version of this car. But man, it looks extreme. Um, I feel like the platform, the Civic Type R platform, the latest one, is a lot cleaner in terms of what you can do with it to look like, you know, a race car. The first one was a little more Gundam-y, very, very sharp edges. Wasn't really my cup of tea, although it did look nice. But the new one really lends itself to look like a race car once all the fancy aero bits are on it. Honda has claimed that the new race car aims to continue the legacy of the Type R and deliver ultimate pure sports performance. Uh, the first shakedown test of the Civic Type R GT are scheduled for July 25th and July 26th, with what have already happened by the time you listen to this podcast. So they've had their testing already. And this car is meant to replace the outgoing NSX that won... Um, I believe in 2020. So now they're moving away from the NSX and jumping into Civic Type R to handle the workload from here on out. It's pretty cool uh, to hear a Civic Type R handling this type of work. Um, I'm very, very curious how it'll do. I'm sure it'll do well because the Civic Type R actually currently holds at least a front-wheel drive record at the Nürburgring, which is a crazy, crazy watch. If you ever get a chance, go look at it on YouTube. Um... It's probably the most fun seven minutes uh, I've ever seen in a front-wheel drive vehicle. It's just wild to see the the performance out of that car and the performance the driver is getting in that car for that uh, record-breaking performance. Now, the Civic Type R GT is planned to debut in the 2024 series of the Super GT, which is right around the corner for us. This year is almost over, which is crazy to think about. Um these uh these developments these pursuits these uh endeavors that these JDM companies keep taking on uh between Toyota and Honda and Subaru and WRC um it's it always keeps keeps me keeps me attached to my JDM roots 
I definitely I have too many cars as it is. I mean, I've considered like maybe I need to get rid of one. But even if I got rid of one, I'd probably get like some JDM car, whether it's a golden era car or a newer car to take its place. Because a lot of the JDM cars are in sort of that affordable, obtainable segment on the new side. And then on the, you know, golden era side, the 90s side, early 2000s side of things. Um, they're not inexpensive for what they used to cost, but they're on the lower end in terms of cars. I mean, I, the idea is to eventually move into a Porsche whenever that'll be. We dream of that every day. But um, I still I feel like I have a an itch to scratch with the JDM cars. Like I, you know, in my younger years, I drove a Civic, I drove E36s, and I've exhausted the E36 game. Now, I mean, it's it's all BMWs in my driveway. Uh, it's got to be a point where we're gonna jump back into JDM. I mean, the NSX was on the radar for a little while, the old school one. Now it's just gotten it's gotten beyond the price that I'm willing to pay for one. It's gotten beyond sort of the nostalgia desire, right? Like a lot of cars, as you get older, um, you know, they, they maintain some sort of emotional, nostalgic value to it. Um, but that value was exceeded on the NSX, NSX side and the Supra side as well. Not saying that they aren't worth that. You know, that's what they're worth. That's what the market is saying. I'm not challenging that. But what I am saying is that nostalgia, the nostalgia tax goes only so far with me. And unfortunately, since I grew up, I think what happens is you look up the prices when you wanted this car. So I would say, you know, mid 2000s, 2005, probably a little earlier than that for the Supra. And then you start, it sort of anchors you to that price and you start seeing the prices that they're going for now. And it's like, okay, that is wild, right? Like if our salaries moved up in the same pace as the price of some of these cars, it would make sense. But that is not the case. I mean, most, at least twin turbo six figures, uh, uh, six speed Supras are six figure cars. And NSXs as well. They're getting six figures, six figure cars as well. Um, GTRs, right? The R34, of course, has been a six figure car forever. So I'm probably looking for something a little more tame than that. They'll never really come down in price. I think at this point they're too legendary. They're too scarce. So those prices are always going to stay. So it's really up to us to earn enough to get them. But, I mean, there are a lot of other options, right? There are a lot of options between, you know, Nissan, Honda, and Toyota alone in some of those uh, in some of those years. There's plenty, plenty to have fun with. But do I really need another car? I guess the answer is yes, but can I really handle another car? That's, that's the worry. I'm not a fan of working on my cars. I do it because I like cars. But it's probably one of my least favorite things. The only thing that beats it is like going to the DMV, even like AAA handling registration stuff. I just don't like doing that. It's like going to the doctor's office. It's just not fun. But second to that is working on our cars. Mm, not fun. Some people enjoy it, but I don't. Anyway, next headline, there's a new hypercar on the block by Zenvo. I don't know if you've heard of them. I hadn't heard of them until recently. 
but they are uh, unveiling the Zenvo Aurora V12 hypercar, which has been revealed via patent images. Nothing is secret anymore. It, it could be that back in the day, like you could file for a patent and no one's going to really look up like government records. Maybe some media outlets might and you might catch it if it's a newspaper or if it's in a magazine. But this type of stuff, I don't even think was worthy of news back in the day because it was so hard to put out information, right? We didn't have the internet like we do now back in the day. So you don't really hear a lot about this, but now everything that is happening with even newer companies, um, it's dug up just because it's the ease of finding information. And through that process, we have seen what the Zenvo is trying to put out with the Aurora. So they are set to debut at Pebble Beach in August, so we will be seeing it fairly soon. But the patent filings actually have sketches in them of what the car is to look like. And it's going to look like a very, very, very traditional hypercar aesthetic. I mean, it's what you would expect from what I would say like a, like a Pagani or a Koenigsegg, very much in that segment. Very wild, flowy lines. Very aggressive aero components. Um, I, I would say it's your stereotypical hypercar, which, I mean, I know the market isn't saturated because there's not a lot of companies. There are more people with deep pockets than there are people making these cars. So there's room for people to do this as long as they're waiting, willing to take the cost of developing these cars. But at the same time, it doesn't look like they're doing anything novel, anything new, which is something that I would like to see. Right. I feel like. I feel like when Pagani, when Koenigsegg came around, um, they've sort of built the hypercar segment. They sort of that aesthetic of extreme flowy wavy lines and and very very aggressive arrow and just really really sharp design that looks like what they've put down on paper versus the limitations of engineering um that they sort of started that and i think as newer companies come in they're going to want to build on that but if the formula works if the market is there why recreate the wheel i mean it makes sense right you need to keep your cost down so it has like a really low front end um, very slim swept back headlamps, a sloping roof line, and then all merges into like a rear section. And there's air channels behind the front wheels and ducts in the rear fascia to help with cooling on the car. Everything you would expect. It's a carbon fiber car, carbon fiber monocoque, and it's powered by a six liter twin turbo V12 engine. Like I said, I mean, it, it's the sort of the stereotypical hypercar. If, if I read these stats and then asked you, which company is the one building this car? You might not say Zenvo because it's probably the least familiar of the bunch, but you would rattle off the usual suspects, right? The Paganis, the Koenigseggs, even Ferrari. Um, so there's really, it doesn't feel like anything new other than the electric turbochargers, which isn't really new technology. We saw it with Gary, I think in back in 2020 at SEMA. But now we're seeing it in these cars, so that would it will have electric turbochargers, which I'm like, uh, I don't know. Anytime you add more to an already complicated component, I mean, a turbo isn't really complicated, but there are moving parts that can get damaged. 
and now you're adding more technology on top of that that could get damaged. There's probably more money involved in fixing them. That said, these cars, hypercars, I don't know. I mean, with the exception of someone that I don't know or someone that hasn't been covered in the media, these cars don't get a lot of miles. So I would guess it doesn't really matter too much that the technology is getting a little more complicated. Um, it, these cars are not going to hit 150,000 miles. Very, very doubtful. I need to look into that. I would want to know like what hypercars there are out there that have crested the 100,000 mile mark. Because that would be really cool to hear, hear. Although that doesn't really happen because these cars really keep very low miles and just exchange rich hands for its whole life before they end up in before they become rare enough and maybe end up in a museum like that's like the only thing you don't really see too much of them doing actual work although it'd be nice to i'd like to say that i would but who knows right we kind of all get stuck on this keeping the value of our cars even at the five thousand no two thousand to five thousand dollar segment always worried about that but anyway the car is expected to produce somewhere between 1200 and 1800 horsepower i mean it's expected if you had a six liter twin turbo v12 engine you're gonna have high output um i don't know what they're expected to do in terms of speed or zero to 60s we'll see that as the car continues to develop but they are aiming to have two variants one with a top speed of 249 miles per hour and the other one designed to have a uh, more high, uh, higher downforce, uh, which is designed for racetrack use. The one that's road-focused with a top speed of 249 miles per hour is called the Tur. And the race car is essentially uh, what it is, is going to be called the, I think it's Ahil or Agile. I don't know the, the, I guess, Dutch pronunciation. I'm pretty sure this is a Dutch company. Um, it's sort of going to be a little limitless, but yeah, these cars are going to be in the million dollar segment. I'd be curious who bites the racetrack version and actually takes it to the racetrack. I don't know. Maybe one day we get into a hypercar. A hypercar is not a car that you find like on the used market beat up, right? We, like we just said, it's not over, it hasn't crested the 100,000 mile mark usually, right? They stay very low miles. So you're always going to end up paying close to or more than MSRP for these cars. So it'd be nice to be able to catch one from the company that's developing them, but that would require getting some serious, serious capital that you're willing to just waste Although not really on this car because the depreciation isn't really there for hypercars. But you're taking a chance with this new company, Zenvo. Uh, but they're coming out with some pretty cool stuff. At least, you know, it looks like every other hypercar, at least on the sketches. But it is new. Now into the next headline. One of the worst Ferraris crashes since Eddie Griffin crashed the F40 back in the early 2000s. Uh, I don't know if you remember, as part of the Redline uh, promotional campaign... They let the comedian Eddie Griffin drive an F40 on a track, an autocross track, and he lost control and put the M40 into one of the barriers. Luckily, it was a barrier um, in between him 
and uh, the people that were in the area, but he destroyed the front end of an F40. But since then, uh, we've got a new Ferrari that has gone viral. An F8 Tributo crashed while leaving a Houston area cars and coffee event. The driver lost control of the car, fishtailed, and smashed nose first into a concrete median. If you look at the video, where some of you probably already seen it, I mean, it looks like it explodes when it hits the median. I mean, it's completely shattered. The, the motor is flying out of it. He hits it pretty hard. The driver only suffered minor injuries, but the car was absolutely totaled. And it was actually driven by a local car collector from that Texas area who had it a week. A week. He barely had it. He barely, barely had it. It's crazy. It was like a Turo rental for him. Um, I mean, I hope it was insured. There wasn't really information on whether he had it insured already. I imagine he did. It'd be crazy to not insure a car of that value if you're taking it out on the street. But, man, that car is done for. There's no way. No, I mean, unless there's someone with a lot of love and patience for that car, there's no way it's worth rebuilding it just with the amount of damage it has. You're probably going to need another one. And at that point, if you're buying another one, just get into that one and, you know, get rid of this one. There's there's just no way you're going to be able to afford to fix it. It is destroyed. It basically just became, became the rear of the F8. Like, that's all that was left. The front end of the car, which is the car that matters the most, well, I guess not in a Ferrari, um, but it's uh, the part that matters the most is gone. It, it literally exploded. It was crazy to see, actually. I almost posted it just because it it just looked like a bomb went off as soon as it hits that median. It didn't really look like it was going that fast. Sort of the illusion of cameras. Sort of the issue that we all have when we're putting our, uh, our track footage up online. I mean, it feels so intense as you're driving through it. But as soon as you look at the video, it's like, man, I was driving really slow. Or that corner is super slow. So the camera kind of gives the illusion that you're not going that fast. But, man, this guy owned the car a week, put it in a wall. It exploded in the front end. I'm sure he'll be fine. If it's not insured, he's probably got the money. He actually is a collector, so he's got plenty of other cars as well. So he'll just probably take this loss on the chin and continue and then buy himself one of those Zenvos. Uh, but it's sad to see. Like, man, if you... If you're a car collector, if you're dedicating your time to cars, go drive them a little bit or get yourself a beater to learn some car control. I mean, we've seen this so much. Ferraris, Lambos, super expensive cars like coming off the lot. There are videos of people test driving them um, and putting them in walls. It's crazy. I mean, maybe it's news because... They are expensive cars, and therefore people are more likely to post them. But I, you see it a lot. I mean, it's like once a week you're seeing one of these cars getting wrecked uh, and whatnot. Um, it's sort of e equal to the Mustang videos that come out. It's crazy. Just, just go get some seat time. Just, you know, practice so you don't ruin your million-dollar car. I think that's uh, sort of basic to ask. But anyway... 
If you ordered a Mercedes, then you might not get it. A ship carrying 3,000 Mercedes and other cars burns off the Dutch coast. So this is in the Netherlands. A, car a cargo ship, the Fremantle Highway, caught fire off the Netherlands coast while carrying nearly 3,000 cars. The fire apparently started near an EV, which is probably the first mistake. As you know, these EVs with these batteries, those fires can be very serious and very hard to put out. They still don't know what the cause of the fire is. But you know what they do know is that the fire is still going. Now, if you're listening to this three months from now for some reason, then... It's probably not still going. But if you're listening to this the week that it came out, it's very likely that it's still going because the fire has been going for days now and is currently being reported on by a variety of different outlets. The crew members attempted to extinguish the fire but failed and seven members had to jump overboard to escape the flames. One actually died, unfortunately, um, due to the fires, uh, which sucks. Um, and others experienced several injuries as well so r.i.p to that guy um there were 25 electric vehicles of those 25 one seemed to have started the fire at least allegedly so far and they had a bulk of those be mercedes cars and like i said the fire is still going so the likelihood of recovering these cars nil uh that's not gonna happen um but i started wondering like what happens in the case where, say, you have an allocation, you you put your uh, car or order in, and you notice it's being shipped from wherever it's being shipped from, and it gives you the notification, your car's on the way, it's heading to the port, and then it's gone. At that point, do you have to wait for another allocation? Do you get bumped up in terms of priority? Does the factory expedite yours? Do you get back in line somewhere? It was very hard to find information on this. I was researching it pretty much for like, I don't know, one or two hours, just trying to find different information. Most of the information that I found was people complaining about one-offs, right? There's delays in their cars. Um, they've been tracking their car for two months, and it says that it's heading to the dock, but it won't arrive. You know, companies being sketchy about it being a delay and just kind of kicking the can, hoping that something happens. But when the car doesn't appear or doesn't show up, they essentially refund you and then you have to start the process all over again. So I would imagine that it works the same way. They're going to say, well, sorry, we don't have your allocation. We're going to have to start the process over again, have them build the car and head out. So I think you get back in line is what I would suspect, suspect or expect um, because, I mean, I think logistically it would be very hard to pull like someone else's allocation, right? Someone else's VIN, uh, build your car, give it to you because now you have to replace that person's and it just becomes a snowball of trying to replace a gap that you're creating until you get close enough to the back of the line where you're putting someone in the back. So rather than having to deal with that, I think logistically they would probably just start your process over again, which sucks 
but it's probably the best financial decision for the company, which is the one they're going to take. Now, it could be that they have potentially a backup process for when this occurs, but I don't know that they would have a process that covers nearly 3,000 Mercedes. Not that they were all Mercedes cars, there was a mix, but let's say 2,000 of these were Mercedes cars. That's a lot of cars to replace um, and then have to deal with the impact of doing that uh, in the inventory. I doubt it. So this sucks. I mean, it definitely sucks for the people that were on the ship, uh, but it also sucks for the people who ordered a Mercedes. Maybe it'll teach you a lesson not to order a Mercedes. You should have gone with BMW. None of those cars have burned. I think they have in the past, though. I think there was another boat that went down, I don't know, must have been like 10 or 15 years ago, that had like $400 million worth of cars uh, that sunk. Um... So it's not unusual for this to happen. I guess it is unusual, but it has happened before. In that case, still, I couldn't really find information on how those cars were replaced. Um, but they have to be replaced, I bet, unless they just tell you to kick rocks, which some of the companies would do. Maybe not straight up just tell you to go kick rocks, but just tell you, hey, there's really nothing we can do. You know, we'll pay you back everything there's no deal you can either start the process over or course or go somewhere else and in this case i would go somewhere else now into our next headline the nissan 400z is stuck in a failure loop so nissan has actually sold less than a thousand z's since it launched if you look up numbers for the supra the civic type r the uh Toyota 8.6 even, the Corolla. I mean, a lot of these cars in that same segment are doing way better. And what gives? So the first was a stop sale on both of the transmissions, uh, both of their transmissions, which effectively forced a stop sale of the 400Z. This has been lifted since it happened, so it's no longer an issue now. But it was an issue for a little while that prevented them from selling these cars and made them more scarce, which leads to the next problem. As you make them more scarce or not really available, dealers are going to start taking advantage, which means they're going to mark up that car. And you're seeing a lot, still a lot of markups in the $30,000, $40,000, $50,000 mark for a Z. Yeah, it's a cool car, but at $100,000, are you kidding me? I'm not getting a Z. At 100k, you're talking a Supra at the very at the very least a mid-engine Corvette, right? At the very least. But I'm not I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I said I'm paying 100 grand for the Z. It doesn't have the same meaning for me. Maybe it does for you and you're like, "Yeah, yeah, I'll spend 100k on it." I'm like, "Nah." I'll wait. I will wait because for the Z to catch up at the used car level in the used car market to catch up with six figures. Nah, that's not happening. And you'd have to keep that car as close to zero miles as possible. So every time you're driving it, you're tiptoeing it at 100K. You're not buying it at 50K markup to enjoy it. No way. No, I don't care how much money you have. No way. That's just crazy. I don't even understand how, understand how this can happen. 
But, I mean, the numbers are low. Clearly, they're not being sold. But both of these are leading to the same problem, right? Because the stop sale, of course, stop sale, you can't sell them, makes them more scarce. Now, the dealer markup is preventing people from buying them. So they're going to sell even less of them. Even once they've figured out production, their dealership team is preventing these cars from being sold. That's really it. They're screwing Nissan by putting up all these markups. Yeah, they're scarce. There's not a lot of them, whatever. But now production is back. They sh these cars should be sold for MSRP. I think the days of buying a sports car at MSRP are sort of over uh, for the most part. I mean, and if supplies continue to dwindle, like most OEMs are taking care of uh, production now, I don't know. I mean, I, or they're going to force more companies to do like what BMW does, where if you get an allocation and order the car through the dealership, there is no markup. But if you're buying from the dealer, then, you know, you're you'll incur the markup that the that they love, love to put on cars. And on the Z, $50,000 markup. Like, I, I just can't I can't even believe it. And, but it's true. It's true. This is happening and still happening now. Now, some other things that have come into play, um, interest rates are climbing. They have gone up since the release of the Z, which means people are less, less likely to take on loans. You know, before the Z was released, um, maybe a couple years before, you could get a zero interest car loan. At most, a one if you had good credit, a 1.9% interest car loan now with really good credit you're still looking at five to six percent and that's with really good credit so it's preventing like the whole market from choosing to buy a car now that said the piece of the pie that nissan is representing here is way smaller than all the other uh oems and their sports cars as well so this is a, a, although causing an impact, not as big of an impact as the things we've already discussed. The other thing is what I mentioned earlier, competition at the $50,000 mark, right? You've got your Civic Type R. I'll even throw the Integra Type S in there. Um, the Supra, although you'll probably pay a little more for that one. Um, but even the, the four-cylinder one I would throw in here as well. Um, the M2. Uh, although it's a little more, I would throw it in there as well. Uh, and especially if in the used car market, like fairly new car. Uh, the M240i is probably the one that I should have included, which, I mean, is a comparable car, at least on the performance side of things. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's It's like I might put all those cars ahead of the Nissan Z at this point. And that of those cars, which ones are you paying, willing to pay a markup for? And which ones are you willing to pay a $50,000 markup for? I wouldn't pay a 50000 over on a Type R or a Supra. Then I'm definitely not going to do it on a Z. And the crazy part here is that we've seen this story before. So back in 04 to 06, the Pontiac GTO went through something very similar. So dealers in 04 uh, were trying to get one, and they were putting insane markups 
on that car. And the Pontiac GTO, for those of you who know, is a V8, like, smaller coupe um, sports car that was very unassuming. It was like a muscle car, but it looked like just a general, almost a general little coupe sedan. Um, So it wasn't too wild, but it sounded crazy, and it was supposed to be super fast. As a result, I mean, they got very, very uppity, like pinky in the air, nose up in the air about this car. At least the dealerships did, and they wouldn't allow you to go to te- on test drives with it. They wanted you to pay your whole life savings to get one. And the same story that we're hearing about the Z now, you were hearing about this car back then, right? Sales numbers were going down. Everyone is mad at the dealership team because they're marking up this car like crazy. But then it's sort of ruining the reputation of the Nissan Z in doing that. Uh, But the dealerships don't care. And Nissan probably doesn't really even care either because the cars that are getting marked up are cars that have been bought by the dealership already. So they're getting their money. They're getting their sales. But they should be... What they should have in their mind is they should be selling more of these cars. And the reason why they're not, or at least a big reason why they're not, is these dealer markups. And where is the Pontiac GTO now? It's gone. Like, it was a small blip. And they weren't bad cars. They weren't bad cars. Of course, they had their problems. But it essentially destroyed Pontiac, or at least helped destroy Pontiac, right? This was supposed to be Pontiac sports car and uh, give them a chance, a breath of fresh air, you know, kind of get a little more a little more fun out of that brand. And the dealerships killed it. And so if Nissan doesn't do something differently here or start talk, talking to their dealership networks, hmm, I don't know, we might end up in a situation where the 400Z will be in the same... Uh, timeline as the GTO or the Focus RS. Although Focus RS didn't really wasn't really due to um, markup, it was more due to emission standards. But you know, Focus RS ran for three years, I believe. Uh, Pontiac GTO three years. Now the Nissan Z three years. It's unfortunate because it's a cool car, but their dealers are ruining it for everybody else, especially now that the production issues aren't. A problem right there there shouldn't be an issue but anyway into our next headline manual transmissions have always been a blip away from extinction i mean there's a reason why our entire lives we've heard brands pop up saying save the manuals there are countless shirts t-shirts that you can buy and all kinds of designs that say save the manuals there's even a brand i believe that's called save the manuals We've been hearing it forever, especially in America where we don't have a lot of them. But now it's become realer than ever. The list of manual cars that you can track is dwindling. There are about 20 left. And cars that you can track for me are really cars that just aren't trucks and SUVs and crossovers, right? Just passenger cars that won't flip when you drive them aggressively, and that's it. You can take them to the track. So we're down to a list of 20 cars, and this is a list for 2023. I imagine over the next even just two years, this list is going to get even shorter. I know some of them are going to leave. The first one is the Acura Integra for 2023. And again, these are all cars for 2023. 
So the Integra still comes in stick shift. Now with a Type S coming in stick shift, there's other cars available there, right? The BMW M3 and M4 for 2023. We've already heard from BMW that they are going to move away from manual transmissions after, I believe, 2024, so going 2025 forward. So this is our this list is already going to look a lot different in 2025. There's a Cadillac Blackwing still comes in stick shift, the Chevy Camaro, Dodge Challenger, another car, the Dodge Challenger that's going away. So uh, today is actually the last day, as I'm recording this podcast, is the last day to order a Challenger. So those are going away as well. The Ford Mustang is available, Honda Civic, obviously with a Type R, the Elantra N, Kia Forte, Mazda 3, the Mazda Miata, which we'll talk about more in our last headline for this week. Uh, the Nissan Z is still available. Porsche has got the 718 Boxster and the Cayman um, and the 911. Subaru's got the BRZ or the 86 if we're talking Toyota and the Impreza for Subaru as well. Then we've got a Corolla, a Supra, a Supra, a Golf GTI, and the Golf R, and the Jetta. That's it. That's what we're looking at now in terms of new cars with manual transmissions. I am wondering, I think the question that I, that I really, really want to answer is, who is going to be the last man standing here? I definitely believe it's going to be JDM. Ah, Porsche, though. I don't know. I take that back. I take that back. It's hard to say. You can make an argument for a lot. We already know BMW is getting rid of them, so they're the first one out the list. That's painful to say. Then you've got your Acura, your Hondas, your Subarus, Toyotas. I don't know. It's it it would make sense that they stay stick shift cars. Those transmissions are cheaper. They're about keeping those costs down. But then Porsche is about the driving experience, but you could say that about BMW as well, the ultimate driving experience and they're getting rid of those cars. So now they're saying that Paddle shifting is the ultimate driving experience. It's easier, right? It's easier to track. It's better. It's faster than humans. So it could be but Porsche goes in that direction. Volkswagen, they're struggling. They might not even be around in a couple years. They're, I mean, they just recently told their whole staff that they needed to tighten up. The, uh, the CEO and like C-level executives are saying, yeah, this is very real. We're, we're at the end of our rope here in terms of money. So they're struggling. So they might get rid of it just to have one less thing to worry about. I don't know. So I'm not even counting them. Kia, with the N, as long as N is still around, they might stick around. But... Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. I couldn't come up with an answer. I could probably talk myself in the circles here, and I wouldn't come up with an answer. I'll ask you guys this week and see who you think would be the last company to still produce a stick shift car. I've also got to see how many, 
how many of these companies sort of share the same manufacturer in terms of transmissions. There's probably not a lot of overlap here than now that I'm looking at it, but it'd be something to look into for sure. Now into our next headline. Mazda is waving the white flag and letting Toyota and Subaru win the horsepower war. Not that there's much of a war, because if there's a horsepower war, I don't think it's those three companies that are winning it. I think Toyota would win out of those three. But we're talking very specifically about the Mazda Miata and the 8.6 BRZ horsepower war. So the horsepower war within that segment. A senior Mazda engineer says that Miata won't be pulled into a horsepower war with weight and balance being the key to the MX-5's character. So the engineer, David Coleman, he stated outright, he's like, straight line performance is not the goal of the MX-5. I get that. It's never been the goal of the Miata to be fast in a straight line, ever. To say that, it's it's almost doesn't matter. It's like, okay, yeah, we know that. But, you know, horsepower figures in sports cars are getting to an extreme level now that in order to compete in some of these segments, you're going to have to increase at least a little bit. So if you're seeing the 8.6 and the BRZ start bumping up numbers, you would expect the Miata to get boosted up a little bit too. But it seems they're not interested in doing that, and they don't plan in increasing horsepower figures or any sort of power output from the Miata in its future. They want to maintain, like they mentioned, the weight and balance of the Miata. The total package is what they're looking for. So according to the same engineer, the current power is optimized to maintain the car's balance and character. And increasing the power would require changes that would compromise its essence. So these are the words of the engineer. What this means to me is that if they boost the power output of the car, they will have to spend more in other areas. Better braking, uh, right? likely would mean more weight, so different suspension components. There's a snowball, snowball effect to increasing the power of a car. right? You're going to wear on components faster, so you're going to need stronger components. I mean, there's there's a lot to consider than just increasing the power, which is a, lot, we're a, a big reason why we see a lot of streetcars crashing is that sometimes they'll invest a ton of money in power figures, but not a lot on the safety side, the braking side, and therefore that causes issues. And if for a company that's doing it at this scale, of course they have to take that into account. Now... It may be true that this messes with the essence of the car, but what it really messes with is the bottom line, right? It's how much is costing you to build this car and therefore how much is going to cost, how much is going to cost to the consumer. And if they start doing that and raising the, uh, the figures, that means they're going to sell less of them. Just naturally, that's just you make the price point higher. Now you're competing against a lot more options in that price point. So if they keep their price point low enough, they can make themselves a desirable option in the in an area of the market that would probably not be taken by a lot other cars. Because if we see the 8.6 and the BRZ get higher power versions, 
you best believe you're going to be paying more money for them. It's not going to cost the same amount of money, and it's, and it's probably going to be a significant boost in cost as well. The Miata is powered by a two-liter non-turbo four-cylinder engine, um, which they say emphasizes lightness and responsiveness. Mazda believes that the instant responsiveness of the non-turbo or naturally aspirated engine suits the Miata platform better than a turbocharged one. Again, these I think he's just saying things to justify their decision their decision to keep the cost down. Because at this point, turbocharger technology has increased so much that responsiveness is not really an issue. I mean, you're looking at turbos kicking in at 1,000 RPM. I mean, that's basically idle at that point. You're, you're really not going to be missing too much in terms of turbo lag um, that it used to be called that you don't really see much anymore. I think the technology has advanced so much, and that's what we're seeing turbocharger technology being applied more and more by the mainstream OEMs. So I would challenge this one as well. Uh, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, if they, if they were honest, they would just say, we want to make an affordable car, sports car for the masses to enjoy. That's really it, and that's respectable. I don't think they have to say all these other things that don't really make a lot of sense, or they have sort of double meaning in, in what they're representing. Because, yeah, no, you're yeah, turbo the car, naturally aspirate the car. I mean, you're very, very close. Now, I like naturally aspirated cars because I like fun, loud V8s. Um, I like not even having to deal with extra parts, especially in a track car. But realistically, in newer cars, you're getting better performance out of some of the turbo cars. Now, there are heating issues that... Mazda would have to figure out, right, once they start turboing, and that might be something that they want to look into. But Mazda has turbo technology. So it, it's it's not like they, they don't know what they're doing. They just have to make a bigger investment to put this in a Miata. So the reports do suggest that Toyota may use the three-cylinder turbo from the Yaris and the GR Corolla for the next-gen 8.6 um, and the BRZ in that case. So that is essentially the nail in the coffin in terms of Mazda pursuing the horsepower war because they've said, we're not doing it. We're, we're not taking that route. We're going to maintain balance. We'll let them, them do what they're going to do. Now, are they really at war? Nah. I mean, they're probably not thinking about each other, than, each other in this regard. And Toyota and Subaru are partnering on this, so there's not really a war going between them. It's more of Mazda versus them. Now they're waiting, waving the white flag which I think is fine, right? I think we need... Now, if they start pricing the Miata at the same levels as the uh, as the BRZ or the 8.6, then you're going to have some problems. But as long as you stay in a more affordable segment and get, make this car an option, I think this will do well for them. There's no need for them to go beyond what they already know because the the Miata is a great package. It's a great car uh, with very great engineering. So, I mean, they've got great reputation too in terms of these cars and what they can do. So it's cool. Keep them, keep them a as is. But if you start pricing them a lot higher, start pricing them in the same segment as other cars with higher uh, horsepower, then they're definitely, definitely going to lose. Now on to our last headline, Elon and scams go together like, well, 
there's no closer duo than billionaires and scams. I mean, it's 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 kind of what they do. But Elon apparently through Tesla created a secret team to suppress thousands of driving range complaints. They wanted to make it look like the situation wasn't as bad as it already was. A man by the name of Alexander bought a used 2021 Tesla Model 3 and expected the advertised range of 353 miles on a fully charged battery. Then he noticed that the actual driving range that he was getting, especially when it was cold, was often less than half of the advertised range. That's a significant decrease. So Ponson, Alexander Ponson, contacted Tesla for service, but the company canceled his appointment. As they had a quote-unquote diversion team in Las Vegas that their sole job was to cancel range-related service appointments to reduce the load on service centers. Just straight up cancel them. I mean, I imagine they were tasked with having a conversation with these people and saying, hey, this is just kind of how it goes. It's kind of how it happens. It's an estimate. This is this and that. Um, but it seems that they were also just simply just canceling the appointments and not having conversations with some of these te- these people. So Tesla intentionally exaggerated the range estimates on their vehicles by rigging the range estimated software for marketing purposes. They wanted to make sure that the brand looked good. And so they rigged the algorithm that's estimating how much uh, range is left to give you a higher range within the first 50% of power. After you got down to 50% battery, it would change back to the normal. So it looked like, you know, if you kept your battery fully charged, you would get better range. In one case, I would say this is probably better for the battery, that you're not letting it completely die and keeping it above 50%. And it could be a reason why they're doing this, although they haven't stated that because they have refrained from comment now that this has been discovered. Um, So these rosy projections within the first 50% of the battery usage were essentially fake. Um, It was Tesla trying to hide, actually make themselves really look good by having a higher than advertised range. Which is weird because I would imagine the EPA doing range testing would have discovered something like this. Or maybe there was some, during the EPA test, maybe Tesla sent a car that could do it. And once they actually saw in the car, it was a little different. Who knows? I think we're going to uncover more as this investigation continues. Um, Now, this isn't the first time that Tesla has been criticized for uh, the sort of range uh, or the fake range that they were dealing with. Um, A lot of automotive experts and regulators uh, were not reflecting the numbers that Tesla was showing in their own tests. And this diversion team that has been discovered was straight up canceling appointments, so people were complaining. And it aimed to save Tesla about $1,000 for each appointment canceled. So that's the amount that they saved by not having to take the appointments, by not having to deal with any repairs, by not having to engage uh, resources on the Tesla side to solve this problem. So it was a lucrative 
move for them to just cancel these employments and not have to deal with it. In tests, some Tesla models showed that they that they fell 26% short on the estimates that they were providing. There isn't really a law that says, you know, your estimate have to be exact, especially with EVs, right? It could be argued that, hey, you know, we're we're just estimating how much power is left based on some parameters with the battery. It's not an exact science in terms of what's going to remain. You could argue that it's, you know, up to how a person drives. It's up to some how conditions, right? Atmospheric conditions to how cold it is with some of these batteries. It'd be very easy for Tesla to argue against this and say, hey, you know, it's they don't necessarily have to give up their uh, technology either. Um, and they, they probably honestly would swap it with a quick update. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways for them out of it, but it looks that the evidence is overwhelmingly in the favor of the people complaining that these tests aren't or at least this gauge isn't showing what the reality is. Now, the diversion team has stopped. This, is, this team was in Nevada, uh, and now range complaints are handled by a virtual service advisor in Utah. So this is still being handled by another team, but they are not calling it the diversion team anymore because that's a little too on the nose. But who knows? I mean, maybe they're still canceling appointments. They're not having to deal with it. Or maybe they're getting to a point now where people are used to the fact that these these ranges aren't essentially meaningless and the reality is completely different and there might not be getting as many complaints now now that they've dealt with a diversion team for so many years. I don't know. But I think we're going to hear more and more of this coming out. If Tesla got away with it, you can imagine other companies are getting away with it too. So they set the blueprint on how to scam range. Tisk tisk tisk, Elon. Tisk tisk tisk. I hope not. I mean, I hope this is a lesson. Them getting caught right now is a lesson to the other OEMs to not lie about it. Although realistically, I don't know. The incentive to do this is so big, right? Dollars. That's what this translates to, dollars that in some way or another, we're probably going to see more of it, um, especially if nothing happens to Tesla in this regard. Because as far as I know, there's nothing sort of legal happening with this. Just so far, they stand accused uh, through the discovery from journalists and other consumers that have complained about the lack of accuracy in the range. It is unfortunate, but I wouldn't own a Tesla anyway, so I think I'm good. We'll see some, what some of the other EV companies are doing. But anyway, that wraps up your headlines. And now we're going to go back to bending the rules. This time, a scumbag. Scott Tucker and Level 5 Racing. So it turns out, if you want to become a race car driver, you don't have to be a good driver. You just have to have extreme greed. You need to be able to scam Native Americans and then take advantage of the poor. If you can combine these three things, you'll become a race car driver, and you don't necessarily have to be a good one. So race car driver Scott Tucker built a financial empire on payday loans, which already says a lot just by the fact that it's a payday loan company, but he didn't even follow the rules within the payday loan space. 
Tucker's company charged extremely high interest rates, uh, ranging from 400% to 700%, and tried to evade regulations by establishing the business on Native American tribal land. So, I mean, this guy had already gotten caught for writing blank checks or bouncing or bad checks. It is writing bad checks. And then he got out of prison and decided that he would take his uh, endeavors into the payday loan space. And initially, um, he was building website after website with like multiple different companies. And he struck a deal with a local bank that said he could use the naming rights or the affiliation to that bank and they would get 5% of his earnings. And the reason why he did this is that as long he ha- as he had bank affiliation, he could uh, charge as much interest rate as he wanted because there are regulations in the market that say payday loan companies can only charge so much rent. They want to avoid the, the whole loan shark thing uh, so much interest uh, rates and they want to avoid the loan shark thing but he wanted to find a way around that and so that's why he made the relationship with the bank the bank didn't actually have anything in terms of uh, providing loans to the people or even have like any hand in Scott Tucker's business they were really there just as a name to support what he was doing now the IRS and the like started getting a little more privy to what he was doing. So he wanted to go a little more legit to where he couldn't essentially be in trouble for doing this. And he found another loophole, which is to do business on Native American land. As long as you're doing business on Native American land through Native American banks, the laws present outside of that don't matter right they're allowed to do whatever they want to do in terms of their structure and their infrastructure so scott tucker found a way to exploit them and make more money in the process so instead of giving the banks five percent of what he was making he decided to give the native american population one percent of what he was making in exchange for doing business on tribal land and therefore was able to tell anyone suing him or anyone investigating him, hey, you can't put charges on me because I'm doing work with Native Americans. But at the same time, like giving them pennies on the amount of money that he was amassing, screwing poor people over. In some cases, he would give out a loan for like $300, And in some cases, people were paying $1,500, $2,000 for those $300. And this was almost immediately. And he was doing multiple scams. So in the fine print, it would say that you were going to pay $350 for borrowing $300. But in the even finer print in his contracts, he put language in that would automatically renew that loan which makes no sense to me but it was so so fine that people wouldn't read it and so then the uh loan would renew and they'd be on the hook for another 650 dollars right because they're borrowing 300 but then they now they owe back 650 dollars 
And then so then people would be would have like an automatic payment schedule, but they would just be paying off the interest and then accumulating loan after loan and end up owing this guy a ton of money on loans that they really didn't even want to take. And in some cases, through contracts, they were uh, stuck with three months worth of loans and interest once it lapsed, if they failed to cancel the renewal. And that's how he made his money. And there was a lot of people that were screwed over in doing this. And so he used his fortune, which was billions of dollars that he made doing this, to fund the Level 5 racing program. And he funded it for years. So it started in 2006 is when he started. Um, and he funded the Level 5 racing program where he was a driver. And he began competing in the SECA and Ferrari Challenge Series. That's right. When he started racing in 2006, he had so much money that he immediately went Ferrari. I mean, he's paying millions of dollars in cars for a Ferrari Challenge Series. Like, how do you start there? Like, how is that not suspicious? Like, man, that's crazy. And so he continued on the Ferrari Challenge, and in 2007, while still doing the uh, SECA and Ferrari Challenge, he entered several events in like the Rolex Sports Car Series, Coney Challenge Series, with his co-driver, Ed Zabinski. So, I mean, he was getting some meaningful reps in there with a lot of the money that he was investing. And he was doing fairly well. He competed in the IMSA GT3 Cup as well. They won multiple American Le Mans. They won a bunch of endurance races. They won the 24 Hours of Daytona, the 12 Hours of Sebring, Petit Le Mans. And he threw so much money at an SECA Spec D sports car that it was faster around Road America than a professionally run LMP2 car. He had so much money. His pockets were so deep with this scam money that he was faster than professional LMP2 cars. Now, that doesn't mean he could drive. You know, we'll give him that. Uh, It seems that he could drive, or at least his co-driver could. But, yeah, it's crazy to me that someone can do this where it's clearly illegal, right? I mean, even the stuff, yeah, sure, he found the Native American tribe to partner with, and he screwed them over, but that, that gave him a bit of an edge. But even then, he was doing business well outside of that jurisdiction, which was clearly illegal, and at the same time being the face of a new racing team that's investing millions and millions of dollars into their vehicles. Like, how is that not suspicious? I swear if I did that, I'd be caught immediately. There's no way. And this happened in the 2000s. This isn't like some 1970s, you know, like, technology is not really there type of situation this is recent this is recent enough to where he should have definitely been caught faster than an lmp2 car for a spec d car that's i mean that's crazy i don't know that i could do this i do like sometimes like you know with like the 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 old stories of the you know the pot smoking uh or the pot dealing uh, race car teams of the past of the 70s and 80s and you hear a lot of that and sort of that's glamorized and romanticized 
you know, once we get start getting into the crack stuff, that's when it's like, uh, yeah, morally, I don't want to, I don't want to be there. Um, but some of those, it's like, okay, that would have been fun uh, to say you did. In this case, like the people that get screwed over are the like the hungriest people. Like, what a scumbag, man! Like, this guy deserves everything he gets, right? He's screwing over the little guy just to go racing in a Ferrari. I don't how do you how do you live with yourself? Like would you be capable of doing something like this? I genuinely believe that anyone listening uh would not. I, I genuinely believe that. There's no way. It takes like an ultimate level of scumbaggery to be comfortable with yourself in pursuing this type of venture and then using that money, using someone's rent to fund your little racing kick. That's crazy. But things caught up to Scott Tucker. Eventually, a case was built. Now, from 2006 to 2017, it seems that there wasn't a lot, uh, you know, in terms of trouble for Tucker, but there were a lot of investigations, uh, a lot of court hearings, And then uh, in October of 2017, he was convicted of 14 criminal counts related to his $2 billion payday lending company. And if the company is worth $2 billion, I bet he made well over that. And he definitely did. Uh, Because in January 5th, 2018, he was sentenced to 16 years and eight months in prison while his co-defendant and attorney, Tim Weir, received a seven-year sentence, and he was ordered to pay $1.3 billion to the FTC and relinquish somewhat $3.5 billion in assets uh, soon after that. So he definitely got in a lot of trouble. I don't know if it was worth it to him. I mean, he spent a long time doing this and racing and having the time of his life, but now he has to spend 17 years in prison for this which I would think he got off a little easy still. I mean, he gets to he gets to get out and still live a life after that, but was that worth it, man? Was it worth screwing all screwing over all those people and 17 years of your life? I don't know. I love racing just as much as anyone, but I don't know. And that's crazy. And I think he deserved way more than that for the damage he caused. Luckily, the FTC is working on getting a lot of these people their money back. Um, That's sort of the point of the $1.3 billion penalty. Um, But that doesn't really ensure it. And it's a long process to get people their money back. A lot of the pain that has has been caused already in terms of people getting evicted and not having enough, enough, enough money to eat, that... You don't recover from that just from getting some money back, right? I mean, you're you're taking people's futures away from them in doing things like this. And unfortunately, unfortunately, these investigations take forever. So despite his actions, though, Tucker doesn't take full responsibility. I think his stance is, well, I played by the rules that were there, sort of, not really, but sort of. Therefore, he's not the bad guy here. He still refuses to see the fact that he's screwed over people and is probably the worst representation of humanity ever. Like, I don't know how you don't see that. You're so blind 
to what you're doing that you don't think you're a villain in this story? Come on, man. Dude is definitely a villain. But it doesn't help that, one, I mean, I'm guilty of it too, kind of covering the story. But then Netflix gave him a show, Dirty Money. And in giving him a show, of course, gives him more money, right? They have to pay him to to use his name uh, in, in these stories. So he's still getting some promotion out of this. Other than you losing those 17 years of his life, which is significant, right? But other than losing those 17 years of his life in prison, there weren't a lot of consequences, right? And a lot of these people are very likely still paying for it in forms of losing their lives, Right. I mean, if if you are trying to borrow three hundred dollars from a payday loan company, it means that you don't have those three hundred dollars. And now you're garnishing people's wages to pay back nearly two thousand dollars on those three hundred dollars. That's not easy to recover from at that level. I mean, this guy is so detached from reality that he probably thinks that, oh, yeah, they'll be back. They'll bounce back next month. Right. As soon as it's paid. They'll be good. It's not a big deal. That's not how it happens. Not at all how it happens. You fall back on rent, right? You need to eat. You need to feed your family. That's where you're going to put the money. But now your family's homeless. I mean, it's a snowball effect. You you lose your job because you can't get a car to get there. This is this guy definitely takes the scumbag award so far, uh, I, I think. I mean, this guy bent the rules in the worst possible way. And honestly, if payday loan companies weren't around, we'd be better for it. But I understand, you know, it's a capitalist market. There's a demand. We're going to we're going to follow through on that uh, as business people and entrepreneurs. But to try to bend the rules to the point that you are putting sketchy language in your contracts and doing deals on Native American land where you have no real relation just to be able to charge extra interest so you can fund your little Ferrari habit. Get the fuck out. What a loser. And anyway, that is bending the rules with the king of the automotive scumbags, Scott Tucker and Level 5 Racing. Level 5 Racing doesn't exist. They had to essentially sell off all of the assets once Scott Tucker was caught, which makes total sense. Uh, So you can look it up. But everything I've told you here today, you can look up. There is an episode of American Greed on this, uh, which is really cool and covers that story. There's also the Netflix documentary. There's a bunch of information here. And consider those the rules of what not to do in the world and be a better human and not screw over people just so you can go racing. Most of the time, we're just screwing ourselves and going racing, and that is okay. Anyway, that is your episode. You can find us at 91octane.com, all letters, no numbers. Also, like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at 91octane. If you want to send us any emails, info at 91octane.com. Thank you guys all for listening. Thank you guys all for supporting. Thank you guys all for engaging on social media. Thank you guys for engaging on all the platforms that you're listening to us on. Um, It helps us. It helps us keep going forward. Uh, I'm working on new things for the podcast all the time. So if you've got suggestions of things that you want to hear, things you want to see, whatever it may be, that wasn't supposed to rhyme, let me know. I'm an open book. Also, if you want to say hi, let me know, too. I always try to reply on social media. Sometimes it's not immediate. We've got a million things going on, but 
I will get back to you as soon as possible. All right. Take care. Good night.